1: Welcome to AI Named This Show, I'm Tasia Custodi,
0: And I'm Tristan Jutra.
1: And we're your human hosts, and wouldn't you know, we just can't seem to stop talking about large language models or LLMs. So join us for another jam-packed episode where we dig into some LLM news along with other generative AI stuff, particularly around the possible poisoning of the AI well, whether by accident, or On Purpose. Dun, dun, dun. And hello to our listeners in Singapore. Tristan, can you believe it?
0: I love Singaporean cuisine.
1: I want to say vanakam. That's, I think, how you say it in Tamil. There's like four, at least four languages that are spoken in Singapore, so I'll apologize. And English is also one, so Hello. Hello. <laughs>
0: is it Mandarin? Mandarin, Mandarin,
1: Tamil, English. We got you covered, you guys. Hello to all of you and thank you so much for listening.
0: And thank you in advance, each and every one of you, no matter where you are in the world, if you could take a moment right now, you could even just pause this podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard so far from previous episodes, just think of one person someone near not too far away from you that you think might enjoy what you've been hearing so far from us someone a tech enthusiast that is you know maybe not a tech expert per se you know we're not PhDs here we're not computer science majors but we are definitely tech enthusiasts we've been in tech media for a long time and we would love it and really appreciate it if you could spread the word that's how podcasts spread they don't go viral on their own it's not like YouTube. Just think of one friend you think that might appreciate this. Thank you. However you say that in one of those four other four languages.
1: And before we jump into all things LLM and generative AI, Tristan, we've got a wee bit of follow-up to take care of from the past few weeks, really. So we have talked a little bit before about Google's SGE, their search generative experience. And now it appears that Google is just so pleased with themselves that they are going to start filling their SGE with ads. We knew it was coming, and here it comes.
0: And this isn't what we meant by poisoning the well necessarily, but it just so happens that this is kind of poisoning the happy AI well in in, in a sense. But we're going to get into some other stories more deliberately about that in a bit. This is just kind of sullying the well.
1: Well, and enjoy it while you can because ads are coming, as we expected. So on Google's latest earnings call, CEO Sundar Pinchai said that the company would be experimenting with new formats native to the way SGE works. So this could look something like a sponsored link above the new SGE kind of like search bar experience there, or I should say summary experience These sponsored links could also be found when users ask a follow-up question as well. So it might be like, say, like a sponsored link to a backpack if you're like, okay, well, which backpack is best for travel? Things like that. So the important thing to know right now is that SGE, as you know, is still in the opt-in phase. You still don't have it in Canada yet, correct? Correct. Right. Not that we're bitter. Not bitter at all. So we might actually see some of this coming in a few months, at least here, stateside, but really to be determined, essentially. So Chief Business Officer Philip Schindler said that it's, quote, extremely important to us that in this new experience, advertisers still have the opportunity to reach potential customers along their search journeys.
0: Translation, It's extremely important to us to be able to monetize this Mm -hmm. great generative search experience because it's costing us a whole heck of a lot of money to make all this happen for you. So we got to get paid.
1: Big time. And their search is not floundering and they're not going to let it. I mean, they've been really vocal about this is going to be the new way we search. This is just going to be how Google search works now. So... Put all your chips in because it's happening, whether you like it or not. I mean, we got used to ads anyway on what I call now like traditional search. We got used (laughs) to sponsored content. So we'll just have to see what it actually looks like. And as soon as I have my hot little hands on it, I'll let you know.
0: And I don't think most of us would begrudge Google or Bing or any of the other players in the generative search uh, market to monetize. It is very expensive to train these large language models, and it's expensive to process every single query. The amount of compute behind this is crazy. So the thing is, is that some of us are also getting used to some subscription services like ChatGPT+, where you know the $20 US a month, it's not cheap, but it's also a very clean experience. And then when you have the search with Bing, which has been recently reactivated in ChatGPT+, you're getting a lot of that same functionality, but without the ads. So maybe we will see a bifurcation in people's behavior where some decide to stick with the subscription sort of model, be it with Microsoft, with OpenAI, with Google, and some who would prefer not to pay and just enjoy the free search experience that we've all been enjoying for decades now. That the most people will probably still do that. It's a question of where are they going to make more money? Because we've seen in other areas, like Netflix has been experimenting with advertising in some of their tiers, and they are finding that it's actually more profitable to be selling ads. And others have found this, publications and whatnot, like subscribers are great, but if you've got valuable content, the advertisers will, and valuable audience, the advertisers will pay dearly to get themselves in front of that audience. So six months ago, it was red alert at Google, and it's amazing how quickly they've responded to this whole situation, getting barred, you know, out the door publicly, at least in the US and some other places, and adapting their whole search experience. We've and we, with with a little bit of controversy because we spoke about previously, if it may end up being resulting in less traffic for the websites that have all this valuable content, especially if Google and others are simply summarizing it and recapitulating it in in a way for people to consume without having to visit those sites. So it's still navigating these waters, but they got to get paid along the way.
1: Well, it's interesting because there was that whole report about it was red alert for Google after ChatGPT launched, but a... According to Google, there was no red alert. And they've not just been working on BARD. They have also been working on Google Gemini. <gasps> dun, it's dun, it's dun. evil twin? It's evil twin. No, it's better twin, question mark. So here's the lowdown, Tristan. Gemini is a set of large language models that leverage training techniques taken from AlphaGo, which include reinforcement learning and tree search, which has the potential to maybe unseat ChatGPT as the most dominant generative AI solution so far in our existence. Before I get too excited, in case you're wondering what the heck AlphaGo is, it's an AI system that learned how to master that ancient Chinese game of Go, which, by the way, is infinitely harder than chess. So it's like a game of strategy and creativity and ingenuity, and... AlphaGo managed to not only master the game, but it also defeated the Go world champ. (laughs) So this, in a nutshell, is what Gemini is learning from, if you will. So here's what we know about Gemini right now. And I will say it's not much, so don't get too excited. It was anticipated to to be released this fall. but. I don't know if you checked the calendar, Tristan, but here we are at the end of October of 2023. And so far, (laughs) so far, nothing. So we don't really know too much about its capabilities, though we can assume multimodal functionalities and advanced learning techniques. And we've already, you know, already what we're being told is that Gemini will combine some of the strengths of AlphaGo, like those types of systems with the language capabilities of these large models that we've come to know and love. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Android police reported that an anonymous source involved with the product said that Gemini will be able to generate text, contextual images, and will be trained on sources such as YouTube video transcripts. So we're going to have to kind of wait and see here if Gemini will actually, first of all, launch, second of all, dethrone ChatGPT. It's really hard, I feel like, to get People once people get used to that first out of the gate thing, whatever it may be, it's really hard to then come in with something else and say, "Here's another option. Learn how to use this." So learn this system now. So time will tell if Google Google can deliver with Gemini. I'm I'm excited for this little tease, but you know I tend to get really hyped about stuff, and then sometimes it does or does not happen. So i'm pumped i hope it's a thing i'm really excited to have like a real head-to-head battle but i do think sometimes about even uber and lyft uber was first to the game and sometimes being first i mean i solely use lyft i'm a non-conformist what can i say Such But <laughs> i like their branding I like their style better but little
0: mustaches on the cars
1: they they used to do that. It was so cute. Um, but, you know, the point being, sometimes being first is all you have to be. You don't necessarily have to be best. You have to be first to the game. So that's kind of what will be interesting to see if Gemini can really hit this out of the park. And it's really interesting that we've really not heard much about it. They've been really secretive about it. And the talk has all been about ChatGPT. and then Google's offering was always just barred. Mm-hmm. So... Oh, we'll see. I'm kind of excited.
0: And you, you mentioned something interesting, the whole idea of first mover advantage. And a lot of that depends on timing, how ready the marketplace is for it. It also depends on the quality of that initial offering as well, because... Let's say we we're talking about first-mover advantage in the smartphone market. Well, you could point to examples such as BlackBerry when they basically revamped their two-way pagers into smartphones with their various successive generations. You could look at a Handspring and then subsequently a Palm with the, the Trio line. Those are effectively smartphones as well. And they were somewhat capable. They, they, they had the spark of the idea. There's even back in the late 90s, you had things like the Nokia communicator as well that combined v- lots of functions all into one device. But it wasn't really until the iPhone, which was nowhere near the first, that it really w- became the gold standard for smartphones. And then shortly thereafter, Google with Android. And I remember before the iPhone and before the, uh, any Android phones came out, there was this talk of Google the G phone Google's G phone or people refer to it like, then maybe Apple is going to be do something, doing something. And sometimes either one of them would sometimes get referred to as the Jesus phone, right? It was the, the, the one thing that was going to change everything. Now, in this case, we had chat GPT November last year, and it came out of the gate pretty strong with version 3.5. And then, Google responded with BARD, ChatGPT updated to version 4, and then the plugin architecture and the multimodality and whatnot. And by most accounts, even though BARD is good, and you've got offerings from Anthropic and others with their LLMs, their chatbots, OpenAI's ChatGPT still seems to be the preferred. It still seems to be the one that, in general, uh, operates the most reliably. Now, All of them have problems, though. And one of those problems is sometimes they hallucinate a little bit. We've heard about psychedelic therapy. Just a a little bit. And they're not even (laughs) taking mushrooms or anything. (laughs) So last April, I think, is when it kind of got on the radar, when people started putting these chatbots through their paces, that something was a little amiss. And hallucinations occur when chatbots or even people basically perceive things that aren't there. And these chatbots are basically telling them about the things that they are, you know, quote unquote seeing. And apparently the problem is escalating. And schools, universities, and businesses are trying to address that. I mean, that can be seen in things like school essays or articles or lawsuits, like you know, legal cases we've found where facts of the, of the case have been totally made up and, or, or case law. And even links, even URLs have been totally hallucinated by ChatGPT. And that, it, it basically what happens is that when they get to the edge of their knowledge and there's no training data to really address a specific question, sometimes they will just go with the flow because they don't really know things. They're not really, it's not really about facts. They're about language. They're probabilistic models, which are, predicting what should be the most likely word to follow and it gets really complex and we're going to include some primers uh, at the end of the show some links for further reading to explain how large language models work but the problem is is that you know, it's been described in a number of articles, such as uh, in the Wall Street Journal, they highlighted an issue where uh, the journalist uh, Ben Zimmer, he asked Google's Bard uh, about uh, some made up, some phrase that he just made up. And the chatbot provided a detailed response as if it were a real term. Um, Sundar Pichai has acknowledged the issue of AI hallucination in an interview on 60 Minutes. and So this is something that they're aware of, um, but these, you know, these human sounding responses we're getting from these chatbots part of the problem with it is they just they seem so confident you know we when we're having these chat conversations with people and i think there's a little phenomenon that we're used to texting our friends if you think about it whether it's on you know via sms or messages or you know in a corporate environment like on slack or teams or something like that you know, whatsapp and so now we're kind of texting or messaging with these chat bots and i think there's a little bit of extra confidence that we're putting in them because we're kind of used to that paradigm already. We, we, we're used to not having to see people's faces uh, or hear their voices, hear, you know, see their body language, even though all those, the lack of all those things can cause misunderstanding. So the kind of misunderstanding that happens here is like, oh, well, you know, you're, what you think is an expert is not actually an expert. So of course, this is especially concerning when it comes to things like incorrect medical advice, legal advice and so on because the increase of harm is greater and greater now what happens even more so when you uh, you get down this rabbit hole a little bit further is that when people are using these tools to generate content to post on websites we've talked about this before either on this show or perhaps on momentous live where it's like making a photocopy of a photocopy. If you, or you just, or or you're playing, you know, that game was um, a telephone where you're telling someone, you know, a secret in their ear and they pass it on to the next person and pass it on to the next person. And it's like it, it, the, the message, even if there was a grain of truth can get totally distorted as time goes on. So what could happen is that if, as you know, the, with the increasing volume of content that's on the web, once it's being, yeah, the increasing amount that's being created by these LLMs and not necessarily correct, and other LLMs are using the web as training data, what can happen is it can perpetuate the falsehoods ad infinitum. So, and this has happened in, you know, more and more where there's like Bing's uh, search engine has provided false information about Claude Shannon, who is a brilliant mathematician and engineer known for his work on information theory. Bing incorrectly stated that Shannon had written a 1948 research paper called A Short History of Searching. And then that false information was generated by two chatbots, uh, Pi from Inflection AI, and that's... Um, Uh, Mustafa Suleiman, the founder of that we've we've talked about previously, and uh, Anthropic's Claude, and these were uh, you know so this stuff is kind of showing up in other places. You you make you know some bad information somewhere, it's going to show up other places as well. So I don't know how we get around this issue unless we are insisting that AI generated or AI assisted content is very clearly tagged, kind of like we talked about previously with uh, Adobe coming up with a logo for AI-generated artwork, having that little CR logo. Is there going to be some way for us to tag AI-generated content so that we don't just end up in a world where we have no idea what's real anymore because the training data has been poisoned?
1: It has to be tagged in a way that then the chatbots can also understand the tag to not use that as part of their training data. <laughs> We're gonna get really convoluted,
0: <laughs> and, and I'm not sure what you know how how we get around this. And I'm sure minds far greater than ours are working on this problem. Or maybe when there's data that's generated after a certain date, then they treat it more skeptically and look for. Uh, You know, you know more corroboration. We actually talked about in the our last episode about some of the tactics that are being used, and we can link to that again too for people who want to look into it. So that is part of the solution. There is finding corroborating evidence to claims that are made online um, by content that may have been generated by these (laughs) these LLMs. Now the thing is, is that if there's so many instances. Because it's kind of, you know, the genie has gotten out of the bottle, so to speak, to reuse one of our show titles, the, you know, maybe the corroborations will be incorrect as well. So there is, I think, a lot of work to be done, given our information landscape is already so sullied as it is with misinformation and disinformation. So some of it's just erroneous. Some of it is deliberate. And watch this space. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So um, when it comes to the imagery side of things, uh, Teja, OpenAI is, is working on uh, a tool to help us find false images.
1: Yeah, we may have to wait a bit longer for our chatbots, but when it comes to images, <laughs> OpenAI is on it. So the company has said that they're developing a technology to identify whether an image is created by Dolly3, the tool they're saying is almost 99% reliable, which is pretty good. So obviously, like as we know, all of these advancements in AI-generated imagery, it's really heightened concerns about the spread of disinformation and deepfakes too, not just in images, but also videos. So tools like Dolly3, which is available to ChatGPT Plus users, Things like Mid-Journey, Stable Diffusion, Adobe Firefly, Shutterstock's AI Image Generator. Gosh, there's even free chat bots like Bing, Image Creator, Google's SGE. So all of these are or soon will be capable of creating really convincing photorealistic images. So a lot of times, you know, like companies that are off of these tools they're trying to safeguard against this really harmful behavior. We talked a little bit in a past episodes about how they're talking about adding watermarks or blocking users from creating images with famous people or images that have identifiable personal information and the like. And I mean, we talked, gosh, remind me not to take selfies
0: with my social insurance card anymore.
1: Right. (laughs) But we talked a couple episodes ago about the deep fake videos with Tom Hanks and Mr. Beast and like just how crazy they were. And they had to come out and say like, hey, what are companies doing about this now? Because people could fall for this. Like if you didn't know these guys, they looked really convincing. So OpenAI's technology to identify Dolly 3 generated images, unfortunately, it's still in development and it's undergoing internal testing. So we still don't know when it's going to be publicly available, but Definitely interesting strides are being made, and it's a step, a small step perhaps, in the right direction.
0: <sighs> Hopefully they have better luck than the text tool that they introduced in the spring to try and detect AI-generated text, and then they pulled it down they a couple of weeks it. later because it wasn't all that accurate. And there Which are other could be why t- yeah.
1: they're taking their time on this, and they're saying internally it's working really well, 99% accuracy, but maybe that's why they're just... Waiting a skosh longer before they release it to the public. They don't want to have to pull it right away.
0: Well, as it turns out, um, it's not just the the AI generated content uh, imagery that we have to have to worry about, but it's also the fact that some artists, Teja, are starting to fight back against these systems that are going and scraping the web and using art as training data
1: it's an uprising it's happening
0: (laughs) the human uprising so there's a new tool called nightshade which lets artists add invisible changes to the pixels in their art before they upload it online so that if it's scraped into an ai training set it can cause the resulting model to break in chaotic and unpredictable ways so you know this is basically a way to fight back against AI companies that are using artist work to train their um, their image creating uh, AI models, and they're not they haven't been getting permission to date. It's one of those things like it's easier to be forgiven than receive permission. Well, some artists are not in the forgiving mood, as it turns out. So by using these uh, types of invisible changes. To point the trading data, it could damage future iterations of image generating AI models such as DALI, which you just mentioned, mid journey, and stable diffusion by rendering some of their outputs useless. Dogs become cats, cars become cows, (laughs) and so on and so forth. Um, so this comes as uh, companies like OpenAI, Meta, Google, and Stability AI are facing a slew of lawsuits from artists who claim that the copyrighted material and personal information was scraped without consent or compensation. Okay, so just to play devil's advocate for a moment, do people mind it so much when their stuff is uh, scraped without their consent to be included in search results? Right? There was no consent there. And I think as we may have discussed in the past... This isn't there. I mean, there's yet to be demonstrated any actual copyright infringement here because these models aren't actually copying the information. They're ingesting. They're creating hashes from it. They're they're learning from it, just like we learn from these things. However, it's on an industrial scale with commercial interest. But they're basically learning styles and sometimes replicating those styles. This is uncharted territory. Now, some of the courts have already uh, said that Whatever you create with these AI models can't be copyrightable. And I think the the other shoe is yet to drop there because some people are – because the copyright only applies to our, uh, works with human involvement. Some people are arguing, well, the prompt engineering is the human yeah, that's involvement. that's my argument. Yeah. Right? Because you're so, still
1: the creative mind behind it. But so yeah. is Nightshade working by putting, for lack of a better term, like a fake – like a invisible to the human eye mask over top of the actual image? Like how, you know yeah. what I mean? Like how is it not able to pull that data? So like if a cow became a cat or whatever your example was, how is it actually working?
0: <clears throat> well, it, sound, it sounds like they're, they're using some sort of very subtle water marking techniques. Other techniques that I can you know, imagine might be including um, the er- erroneous metadata on purpose, for example, so that the descriptions you're using, I mean, that's going to screw up search engine optimization in general uh, as well. But what happens is that when you start confusing it, whether it's visually or through the metadata, then, you know, the training gets all messed up because they're looking for, you know, very clear signs of what's what. Because in the early days, what was happening is we were seeing the, um, reinforcement learning through, uh, Human feedback that's known as RLHF. So even before that, people would go and manually tag images if there's no metadata originally. And then people would start giving feedback when a, um, when either a, a you know, large language model or an Im- image generation model would create these works and people would say, yeah, that's good. No, that's not good. And then you can get into g- generative uh, adversarial networks we, like GAN, which we saw uh, in the early days of some of these image generation platforms, like early, early days, like a year ago, maybe. And where the computer systems would basically tell each other whether they thought the the work was, uh, you know, legitimately looked like a cat or an av- uh, you know, a chair that looked like an avocado or whatever the you know, various examples that we've seen over the last couple of years. So there are various levels of training. So if now the the well gets poisoned, you're kind of if there's anyone starting wanting to set up a new system there or, you know, or they, they could have to go back. And you know, to, to square one, rather than take advantage of a lot of the advancements that have already been made, right? Because if you're, if you're, you've got these watermarks or this metadata that is leading the training models astray, you're going to have a bad time, and you're going to create a model that does not produce decent imagery, and that's going to fr- uh, you know, frustrate people. So the the uh, the uh, professor at University of Chicago, whose name is Ben Zhao, he led the team that created Nightshade, and he says that the the hope is that it will help the uh, tip the power the power balance back from these AI companies toward artists by creating a powerful deterrent against disrespecting artists, copyright and intellectual property. So just to be clear like this is an an ideological sentiment which you know, perfectly you know, which is perfectly fine the the risk I suppose is, When you're not included in these things, then are you risking slightly less relevance? I mean, you may be protecting yourself in some way. I mean, you go back to a a generation ago, and I know some people who are photographers, that didn't want to put their art online because they were afraid of it getting ripped off. Which is definitely a legitimate concern and there's ways to protect yourself against that by using say lower resolution imagery doing some watermarking and whatnot we still see the same kind of problem today with uh, print-on-demand services you get a cool t-shirt design and next thing you know it's on Redbubble and all these other places people are just simply ripping off the, these designs so i get it that people want to protect their work but the kind of this is not straight copying and pasting this is training so If we, you know, if you don't want computers to learn, are you saying that you don't want your style to influence other human beings either? Is this, are computers, these large language models being discriminated against, Tasia? I thought this was 2023.
1: (laughs) Well, from what what I'm understanding is because it's training it, so uh, theoretically, the more people that opt into this, because I think it's opt-in right now, then the more powerful it would become, essentially, Because it's learning more of that training data to like mask these photos, however they're masking these images. It's kind of wild. But then I wonder what happens if that gets like large scale out into the wrong hands and then people are just screwing up all our training data.
0: Oh, yeah so the, the the other half of this equation is a, is a tool called glaze, which allows the artists themselves to do the masking of their own style to prevent it from being scraped by these AI companies so it works similar to Nightshade and it changes the pixels in subtle ways that're invisible to the human eye but can manipulate the machine learning models to intercept the image or sorry to interpret the image as something different from what it actually shows so this team that's working on these two tools, they aim to integrate them, and then artists can choose whether or not they actually want to use the tool. So it is totally opt-in. But the more they use it, the more poisoned the well is going to get, especially for those looking to train new models. So any new stuff that's already been trained on, uh, thats it's kind of the, the ship has sailed on that. But when new works, so this is the sort of thing that may benefit new artists people generating new art new works um but it could also prevent some exposure as well like again back to that original uh, point that i had is that if you want to you know hide from the bots whether they be search engines or training bots maybe you get a little bit of less exposure in a way and so that's and as an artist like i get it you want you you feel very precious about your creative works they have you know, your blood, sweat, and tears have been poured into them. So having that option, having clear labeling, which we've talked about here in the past as well, I think is good. And then people can make informed choices. I still think there's enough original work out there in the world. So even if a, a large number of artists choose to opt out, we'll still have some good data. But, but by poisoning the well deliberately, it actually kind of ruins it for everyone, even the ones who are okay with having their stuff in there. If you get, get what I'm saying? So this might not necessarily be the best tactic. I think rather than this well-poisoning approach, perhaps just more of a, a clear universal labeling sort of approach. Um, just for those who are interested, like the what, what's being exploited here is a security vulnerability in some generative AI models. That, um, that That's what Nightshade is, is tuning in on. So again, if those models get tweaked a little bit, it might plug up that hole and they... The models may become a bit more impervious to these kinds of shenanigans.
1: <sighs> I feel like every we should, day we need
0: to do a supercut of all the size. All the we've size had that this.
1: I do because it's just so overwhelming. <laughs> Why did we have this idea to do a full podcast about AI? It is so overwhelming. So much. So much changing every day. We don't know what the right inter- answer is, and that's the most frustrating part.
0: Speaking of size, if there's any Star Wars nerds out there, there's a supercut floating around online from the recent TV series uh, Ahsoka, which is just all size. Various characters sighing throughout, I believe it's eight episodes. It's, it's tremendous. So, yeah. Is the, is the whale going to get poisoned? Are these efforts going to gain traction? That whether, you know, so the, to poison the well deliberately, as we've discussed, to poison the well inadvertently, by the you know the the photocopy of the photocopy of the photocopy of incorrect information populating websites out there and or you know our nice generative search experiences being poisoned by the addition of ads which I think that's the one that's most likely to happen because again the bill's got to get paid if any of you are interested, nice <laughs> if any of you are interested in learning more about llm's large language models you know we we keep things that are fairly high level here but you can go down the rabbit hole if you're interested in learning how these things actually work it's actually quite fascinating and we have we'll have links in the show notes for uh, three different articles for you one from Ars Technica one from the Financial Times and one from Stephen Wolfram of Wolfram Alpha. And so in the first one, the Ars Technica one is basically, uh, it's a gentle primer. We actually talked about it very briefly last week. It's a gentle primer on how LLMs work, explaining concepts like word vectors and transformers, which we've talked about developed by Google in a reasonably jargon-free manner. The Financial Times one, is pretty cool in that it's, it delves into the transformative impact of generative AI on in various industries, discussing the technology's potential and challenges. But the difference with that one is it uses a visual storytelling uh, sort of interface on their website. And you scroll along and then it shows you how these, how the transformer model works, and how the LLMs work with the probabilities and everything to figure out the meanings of words and how words um, go together in the training data, as we've discussed, but also when it comes to formulating responses to the queries we give the large language models once they've been trained. Super cool stuff. And then lastly, Stephen Wolfram, who is a a legend in in his own right, um, he's a distinguished computer scientist, physicist, and entrepreneur, and he's known for his work in theoretical physics, computational thinking, and as the creator of Mathematica, which is decades-old software from Wolfram Alpha, Wolfram Alpha, and uh, he also developed the Wolfram Language. He offers an in-depth exploration of ChatGPT, which is kind of a proxy for... You know, when we say ChatGPT, we're kind of referring to most of the large language models that are out there, including you know, Google Bard and um, you know, Meta's... L- Llama, right? It's and like, uh, anthropics Kleenex. Claude. Yeah, exactly. Well, when we say
1: Kleenex, we're meaning yeah. tissue.
0: <laughs> exactly, and I like to say Chatty G, you know, to pretend I'm Aussie <laughs> or something like that, right? So he provides insights into its inner workings and why it performs so well into generating uh, meaningful uh, text. In, in generating meaning, meaningful text, so. yeah. If you want a deeper dive on those that then, uh, we have time for on this, because some people accuse us of going along a little long as it is, others seem to enjoy it, but we're going to split the difference in this episode and um, you know, sign off.
1: We're keeping it tight and right today, people. <laughs> so with that, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of AI Named This Show. And Tristan, this was episode 10. Oh, was it? yes oh wow i think god i hope i'm counting right yes this (laughs) is episode x and you know what even though we're in the double digits now we're still new and we do really appreciate your feedback so you can email us at feedback at ai named this show.com of course you can find us anywhere you get your podcasts so be sure to give us a follow and a share please leave us a five-star review over on apple podcasts we're also on all the socials we're at ai named this show we're on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, X, though I'm still calling it Twitter. Hey,
0: for episode X, maybe you should finally relent should and start calling it X, calling
1: it. This is episode X on X. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us.
0: AI and goodbye.